Britain's footprint in Afghanistan is getting smaller. Our reservists at greater risk of PTSD than regular troops. And we hear from Jeremy Paxman about his new book, Great Britain's Great War. I think it would be extremely difficult for a government to commit forces to anything like at one-tenth of the scale of the engagement in the First World War. Ten years ago today, SITREP predicted that British troops would be in Afghanistan maybe for a whole decade. Not everyone agreed. Ten years later, we're still there, and BFBS reporter Tim Cooper has been talking to Lieutenant Colonel John Swift, commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. They've just closed the last British base, forward operating base, Ulet, in Nari Siraj. Well, I think one of the biggest steps forward is the, the working together that we've seen. The police and the army within the Afghan National Security Forces are working together very, very effectively now. And that's not just on the ground. This starts back at the planning of an operation. And to work together like that, I think, is a development that has not been seen in recent times. In terms of how they operate on the ground, they, they plan together now. In terms of how they can be compared to British forces conducting an operation, how comparable are they? Well, I think it's important to remember that they're operating in their own country and so they need to operate in the way that's going to be successful for them and that's what we've seen them do. Um, at the end of August there was an operation that they planned and conducted um, where they saw off a significant insurgent attempt to infiltrate the protected community uh, and they had the insurgents on their toes uh, and retreating back across the Hillman River within a couple of hours and that was really heartening to see. We saw your, uh, your chaps leave uh, forward operating base Ulet in Nari Siraj. That is now under the control of the Afghans. How confident are you in what they'll be able to achieve there? I'm really confident because we've developed with them over the course of the last six months and we've been tactically developing their counter-ID awareness skills, for example, uh, but also their local knowledge is what's key. And so I think when you couple those two things together, then I'm very confident they're going to be able to maintain security of that route, an important route, um, in the coming months. The Afghan National Security Forces are facing a lot of challenges. Um, the, the number of people leaving the force is rumoured to be at around 10%, and there are some claims that up to 100 of the Afghan National Security Forces are being killed across the country every month. That's a lot of strain to be put upon them. How will they cope with that? Well, the will and confidence of the Afghan National Security Forces in Nari Siraj, I think, has been really good throughout this summer fighting season. Let's remember it's the first one where they've been in the lead. And yet the casualty rates, certainly in the district that I've been involved in, have not been um, significantly higher than other times. So I'm pretty confident this is sustainable. Um, they maintain their will and confidence. In fact, it's up over the last um, few weeks. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to be able to sustain that security in the coming years. The drawdown has been very marked as, as one of the hallmarks of Operation Herrick 18. How pleased are you with the way your personnel and indeed the personnel across Herrick 18 have handled it? Well, I think my guys have been um, aware that this is coming for a number of months. Um, it's not something you do quickly. You do it responsibly in an appropriate time frame. And that's what we've been concentrating on, to make sure that the Afghans are aware, uh, we reassure them, we help them understand what support is available from ISAF. But frankly, they very rarely ask for support because they just don't need to. We see in, in the press from time to time scaremongering stories that when the British leave, when ISAF leave, this is all going to go to hell in a handcart, to paraphrase, really. What's your assessment of that? Well, certainly within Norris Siraj district, I just don't think that's going to be the case. Um, I think they are going to maintain a level of security that the local nationals would understand, accept and welcome. 
And certainly when I've spoken with the district governor of Nari Siraj, he works together very effectively with the three Kandak commanders, the battalion commanders from the Afghan National Army, and indeed the district chief of police, to deliver a, a security situation that the local nationals are happy with. And I think that's going to be sustained in the coming months. And moving on to the coming months, Operation Eric 19, well in, in full swing and taking over here in Afghanistan. Where do you see that operation heading and, and what challenges will they face, do you think? Well, it's very difficult to crystal ball gaze. Um, I think they're going to face uh, a number of challenges and that's continuing to develop, mentor and assist the Afghan National Security Forces as British forces draw down and begin their redeployment. So, uh, yes, there are going to be a number of challenges. It's very difficult to predict what they are going to be, but I'm pretty confident that the Afghan National Security Forces will prevail. That was Lieutenant Colonel John Swift, the commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, talking to our reporter, Tim Cooper. Well, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with us as usual today. Hello, Christopher. So a positive message there about the handover of that base to the Afghans. What, what do you make of it? I'll tell you something, it's, it's interesting, listening to the colonel there, um, you get a sense that this is the man with the boots on the ground, the dust, who gets around who talks, who does the, the listening to local people and watches it practically. It's almost as if I sort of I want to hear more of him than I do of the generals. And there is that sense amongst the British public when the generals say it. People say, oh, yeah, you know, they, they, they're instructed to say that. Whereas Colonel Swift there, he's saying it because I'm there. I'm talking to these people. I see how they're operating. And it was an interesting point, you know, asking for backup. These guys don't ask for backup, he said. Mm. They get on with it, and so far. However, when we've gone, when the whole thing has moved on, it is how the insurgents, you know, the Taliban or whoever you like to call them, uh, how they react, and then you've got the, the real pressure. Of course, looking to the future, the presidential elections in Afghanistan in six months' time, will that change anything? Well, it'll change this. Um, President Karzai has to go. Constitutionally, he can't stand again. Indeed. Um, so what's happened, come this Sunday, all the people who want to stand for the elections have got to have their names forward. And the most important one, I think, is a guy called uh, Abdullah Abdullah. Mm -hmm. And he is the man that can probably best reflect the difficult balance between what the Americans, the British, or anybody else wants for, um, for Afghanistan and what he thinks the locals want, and what the different ex-warlords want. And is he the favourite? Uh, I imagine if I was a betting man, I'd put some money on him at the moment. Um, but it's who you bring in with you. So, uh, President Karzai says, oh, you know, I'm not sure about this, etc. Except that now he's brothers in the race. Yeah. And so once he can slip his brother in there, people start saying, oh, we don't want to Slip his brother in by? By having him as a candidate or having him as a vice presidential candidate with somebody like uh, uh, Abdullah, Abdullah but, uh, which I suspect he won't be, but that doesn't matter. But the person, for example, that Abdullah, Abdullah has, to, has to bring in with him is probably somebody who is sympathetic with the old warlord style uh, operations which which really sort of connected with Taliban to some extent. But Abdullah Abdullah, think of the name. We're going to hear a lot more about him because for two reasons. He's, uh, he's part Tajik. He's also a Pashtun. Mm. And Tashtun, Tash, Pashtun and Tajik are the marvellous ethnic uh, mix to become president. Just looking over the border to Pakistan, things are unstable there. We've seen recent attacks there. What does that mean for Afghanistan? It's in, it's in, uh, it's in big trouble, Afghanistan, for it. Uh, what's happening, Nawaz Sharif, who is the, who is the, uh, you know, the head of uh, Pakistan, it's all unravelling for him since the election last summer. The army's getting very gritty about it. He's saying, and they're saying, stop talking to 
Taliban. Taliban will not run the future of Afghan uh, of Taliban of uh, of Pakistan. And if Pakistan doesn't get it right, then Afghanistan's going to get a harder job to get it right. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, are reservists more at risk of getting PTSD? And we speak to BBC Newsnight presenter Jeremy Paxman on why he's written a book about the First World War. PFDS sit rep. The Defence Secretary has insisted the Conservatives can be proud of what they've achieved in defence. Philip Hammond's assertion at the party's conference in Manchester came minutes after he was heckled during a keynote speech by a retired colonel, angry at the closure of a local battalion. as they always serve us, round the clock. Gentlemen, 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 would you like to sit down? Would you like to sit down? I'll come and talk to you happily later on. Let me complete my speech. Thank you very much. Well, afterwards, he spoke about that interruption to BFBS reporter James Hurst. Well, look, I think there are two uh, different things here. There's the, there's the overall... Uh, change to the structure of our armed forces, which is absolutely essential if they're going to be uh, ready for the challenges of the 21st century. We have to restructure and we have to constantly innovate and evolve. We can't fossilise uh, our armed forces. And then there's the separate question of the understandable uh, concern people feel when a battalion or a regiment that has a long and proud uh, history is affected by those changes. And of course I understand that individuals who've um, had an association with a battalion uh, that is going to be removed uh, from the order of battle uh, will be very uh, upset, perhaps traumatised by that. Of course I understand that. But those are separate uh, issues. You announced today the creation of a new cyber reserve unit. In your speech you said Britain needed to be prepared to go on the offensive to launch a cyber attack. Is that a new position for Britain? I don't think I've heard that before. Um, it's, the, it's the first time we have publicly set out our intention to build a cyber counter-attack or cyber strike um, capability. It's entirely logical. In every other military domain, we have defences, but we also have the ability to attack. And that ability to attack deters attacks on us. It would be illogical in the cyber domain to rely on defences alone, and it would be disproportionate to respond to a cyber attack with any with a kinetic uh, strike. We have to be able to strike back in cyberspace. You finished with a very clear message that on your government's watch, Britain will not shrink back from its international obligations. Unless I'm mistaken, you didn't mention the word Syria in your speech once more. I wonder if you feel the parliamentary vote against any British involvement in military action is a bit of embarrassment to the country. Well, obviously, we were disappointed by the parliamentary vote. Um, it's clear, uh, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, the last month or so, that the threat of military action is what changed the position of Russia and what uh, caused the apparent compliance of the Syrian government. The threat of military action can be uh, an effective tool in international uh, diplomacy, and I'm sorry that Britain uh, was not able to be part of that. But the point I was trying to make was that the circumstances around the Syria vote were particular, and nobody should draw the conclusion 
from that that Britain is in any way drawing up, drawing up the, uh, the bridge, drawing back from its engagement in international uh, affairs. There is a new UN resolution on Syria and its chemical weapons. If Syria fails to comply with that and the possibility of military action comes back very firmly onto the table, would Britain, would that be a new chapter for Britain to consider military action again? Well, we'd have to see the circumstances, uh, but I have said, and the Prime Minister said, uh, that before we could expect Parliament to want to look at this issue again, having decided it once, there would have to be a very different set of circumstances from those which uh, obtained when Parliament made that decision a few weeks ago. That was the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond speaking to BFBS reporter James Hurst. Christopher, what did you make of what Philip Hammond had to say there? I think it's interesting we're using the reservists in, in, for a cyber group. Um, and you can't do it with the services any longer. At one time, you'd whip them all down to Ashford in Kent, which is the headquarters of the Intelligence Corps, and say, right, we'll form a unit like PSYOPs or something like this. A, you don't have the numbers anymore. And apart from the fact that Ashford has now moved to, to Chicksands, um, you don't have the expertise and you can't have the huge operation. So what you do, you go out to the people that do have the expertise. And just as the reservists have to supply the interrogators, the medical bulk of the medical staff for the, for the army, at, at least, you can do this. Now, somebody was saying, ah, oh, you mustn't do it because you mustn't announce you're going to do this and you go on the attack. Listen, if you form an, a, a battalion, an infantry battalion, what do you do? You say you, you sit on your backsides until we go to war and then we'll see if you can attack. No, you, you, you plan so you, you think it's completely normal that he came out with this and said that uh, that Britain would go on the offensive in the cyber world? I tell you, the UK is, if you go around the NATO cyber uh, defence and cyber uh, countermeasures uh, people at the moment, they reckon the UK is actually wised up quicker than the rest of them, except for the Americans. And they're producing far more good people who are thinking this through than anybody else, any of the other nations uh, yeah. in later. And, and will it work, do you think, using reservists uh, as cyber experts? They love it. Of course they do. They love it. I mean, A, they don't have to go marching up and down and tramping around and sort of, and they don't necessarily have to go off to war. So they don't, they're not like infantry or, or, or whatever. They might be working for international companies in and the also, UK. And well, who are in, in the same business anyway. And the where it's sort of, uh, where it's sort of sponsored by, you get, you get, you're going to get this whole thing sponsored. And the other thing which is fascinating, because it'll be joint service. We tend to think of a reserve as army. As the mm. OTA, the Army Reserve, but this is going to be like the old intelligence reserve units. It's going to be a, a joint service, and that brings brings three services together who got to think the different aspects of uh, cyber counterintelligence and cyber attack. Uh, as James pointed out in that interview, the Defence Secretary didn't even mention Syria by name in his speech. Well, then nobody knows what to do about Syria. I mean, Syria is in a terrible state at the moment, and that is, a, well, apart from everything we know about sort of chemical weapons, etc. But the most important thing that's going on at the moment is that some of the there are about ninety operational rebel groups, if you like, and they're all getting fed up with what's going on outside. The outside people are running from Turkey, trying to overthrow Assad. Um, you've then got the Syria, uh, the the Saudi Arabians, who are now backing another Islamist group because they don't like the Islamic, Islamic extremist group who want to have a whole Middle East turn out to be an Islamic state. And so it is a mess. The only thing we do know is that the 
guys that have been sent in to 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 dismantle the chemical systems that Assad most certainly has had, and there could be as many as forty bases for them to do it. They started work. 36 hours ago. When are we going to hear progress on that, do you think? I don't think we'll hear it for a, or sort of two or three weeks, and then what we will hear is the possibilities, because certainly around, about, I think about 11 or 12 of those uh, bases that they've got are in, are in uh, combat zones. Mm. And so how do you actually sort of, um, how do you actually get to the equipment in a combat zone? Stay with us, Christopher. New figures released this morning show a 21% increase in the number of armed forces personnel seeking treatment for mental health issues compared to the previous quarter. The statistics from the Defence Analytical Services Agency also show army personnel are at a significantly higher risk than members of other services. It follows a warning yesterday from the charity Combat Stress about a sharp rise in the number of reservists seeking help for PTSD. BFBS reporter Kaya Lark is across this and joins us now. Kaya, tell about the latest figures. Well, Kate, these figures are released every three months by the MOD. The numbers are gathered from the electronic patient care records and this quarter, which we're referring to, which is actually April to June, shows a 21% increase on the previous three months. Now, they also flag up some very interesting differences. Army personnel, for example, are are at a significantly higher risk of reporting mental health problems and female personnel are actually also significantly higher than their male counterparts. Now, that could could be down in part to the stigma that still surrounds mental health and the fact that women are more likely to go to their GP or to seek help than men. And the other thing to note is that the figures show lower ranks are more likely to need assistance than officers. And these figures are for all personnel, whether they're regular or reservists. And yesterday at Combat Stress, we heard from them warning about a possible surge in post-traumatic stress dis- cases of post-traumatic stress disorder in reservists. Yes. Now, the charity says it's seen around a 50% increase in the number of reservists seeking help from them on the battlefield it doesn't matter really whether you're a regular or a reservist, you're brothers in arms but it's when you get home, that's when the cracks can really begin to show you leave behind that regimental family when you come back from your deployment and the support of course that, that comes with that. Now it can be tough enough for regulars as Hugh Forsyth found, he served with the Royal Engineer Bomb Disposal Team for 12 years but his life began to fall apart when he started suffering from PTSD which wasn't diagnosed straight away. Myself, I think, if I was to be honest, I, I knew there was a problem from my first incident when I was 18. Um, but since leaving the services, I would say um, about eight or nine years later, um, I, I was divorced, I, I attempted to commit suicide, I was uh, violent towards my, my ex-partner, um, I lost jobs, I argued with my bosses, and uh, one of my bosses, I broke his fingers in an argument. Now, the MOD is in the process of reducing the number of full-time personnel over the coming years and doubling reservist numbers to 35,000. And Andrew Cameron is the Chief Executive of Combat Stress. I'm afraid that, uh, from what I see, some of our reserve uh, colleagues um, uh, drop out of uh, the reserve mateship after they come back from active service, partly because of the condition that they find themselves with, and therefore they become isolated. And I think it's for the reserves and for the MOD to to try harder to reach out to those guys who've stopped appearing at training nights, for example, to make sure that they're okay. And Kai, what is the MOD doing about it? Well, the MOD says it's committed to helping everyone who serves in the armed forces, whether reserve or full-time. And they say the government has invested almost £7.5 million to improve mental health services. But Captain John Sharpley, the Defence Consultant Advisor on Psychiatry, says they know that they need to do more research. We've done surveys of people while they're out in the operational theatre 
And actually, the comparison between reservists and regulars then is that there's not much difference. Uh, it appears that the difference is after they've come home. So what that implies is that it's not what's happening out in theatre that is the cause of the difference. Don't get me wrong, both regulars and reservists are at risk of some uh, mental health problems uh, after they come back from operations. Now, as well as the £7.5 million that the MOD has invested, there was also a white paper released uh, earlier this year which particularly looks at reservists' mental health. All right, Kay Lark, thanks for joining us. The centenary of the outbreak of the First World War next year has sparked debate and reflection over its real meaning and how best to commemorate the Great War. Now, BBC Newsnight's Jeremy Paxman has written a book about it. Earlier, I began by asking him what he brought to a subject already well-documented and analysed by historians. Well, I'm interested in stories and I'm interested in, in people. I'm not really interested in theory. Um, what I've tried to do is to tell the story of the effect that the war had upon Britain. Between you know, A Victorian coming back to Britain in 1914 would have found a country that he could recognise and understand. Coming back in 1924, I really don't know that he would because the war had required vast numbers of men in uniform and women in uniform, incidentally, although not actually fighting. It had involved the total population from children through to old people. It had put the government into all areas of life. Not only did they control the, the forces, they controlled industrial production, they set rents, they set uh, wages... They even controlled whether you could go to the pub or not or what you could do. I mean, if you had gone, been going to the pub with your husband uh, after the Defence of the Realm Act was, uh, had brought in its restrictions on the use of alcohol, he would not or you would not have been allowed to buy him a drink or he you. The, the, I mean, the, the, all sorts of areas of life had changed as a consequence of the war and one of the big changes was the involvement of government in people's lives. As a consequence, at the end of the war, they had to allow people who at the start of the war were expected to fight but were not allowed to vote, to vote. So it was a huge change. It may, and my interest is in what it did to Britain. And what it did to Britain was to make it what we recognise today. And in terms of Britain's global status and its international interests, how have they changed since 1914? And do you, do you agree with David Cameron when he still talks about Britain having a presence on the international stage? Well, Britain clearly has a presence on the international stage, um, whether it's you know, the seat at the Security Council or other things. I think you know our diplomats are very pleased with how they uh, struck the world stage. The... The armed forces in, of Britain are extremely professional from what I've seen of some other uh, armed forces and indeed ours. Uh, so I think this is true, but really, I mean, let's be frank about it. This was the apogee. Before the First World War, Britain was unquestionably the top power in the world. From the end of the First World War onwards, what you get right up to the present day is a nation sort of walking backwards into the future, that our greatest days are behind us. Mm. And certainly in terms of the size of the empire, this wasn't just true of Britain, it was true of other colonial powers, whether they were you know, French or Spanish or whoever. But it was, I think it, this, this is the point at which we started looking in the other direction. 
The British Empire was actually bigger after the First World War because we acquired various German territories and there were various League of Nations mandates. But actually, in terms of power, the power had been expended. The war bankrupted the country and took a terrible, terrible toll from which we've not, I think, even now properly recovered. And I think... You know, you look at that vote on Syria in Parliament the other day about whether there should be military involvement there, and I think you can see that in the context of a process that goes right back, notably, of course, it goes back through Suez, but it goes right back pre the Second World War to the end of the First World War. We often see history repeat itself in warfare, perhaps similar assumptions and misjudgments. You write about them in your book. Was there something mankind learnt from the First World War that will change the way people engage and conduct in warfare in the future? Um, I think the, the the big thing, the abiding legacy is a distrust of authority. And that has got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason that, you know, most people, I, I think now, this is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, they see it through the prism of the 1960s. They see that, that very entertaining musical, Oh, What a Lovely War, or Blackadder. These express a 1960s view of authority. The world in 1914 to 18 was entirely different to the sort of world in which we live now. One of the very big differences, of course, is the absence of media scrutiny. I think it would be extremely difficult for a government to commit forces to anything like at one-tenth of the scale of the engagement in the First World War. If, they, if the pictures of these things, uh, pictures of what was happening particularly when it was stagnant, were being beamed back to those men's families every night. That is a huge, huge change. And Jeremy Paxman's book, the Britain, Great Britain's Great War, is out now. Um, Christopher, um, you're a historian. You've written books. Uh, you can be a critic now. You've read this one. Mm. Tell you something. Uh, the best book on the First World War is written by an Oxford professor called Hugh Strawn. Okay. But the majority of people will not read Hugh Strawn's book because who is Hugh Strawn? I mean, unless you're an insider. Jeremy Paxman is public property. Therefore, people will go out and read the book, however good it is, and I think it's okay, uh, because it's Jeremy Paxman. And I think that's brilliant mm. because it means you've got a new audience that otherwise wouldn't probably read a thing about it. So, and wouldn't know, you know anything about the First World War. Yeah, before. and so... so Bravo for, bravo for doing that. All right, let's look ahead to uh, the rest of the week. Um, Turkey, first of all. OK, this afternoon, around about sort of five o'clock UK time this afternoon, Turkey is voting to keep its army on standby to invade Syria if the Syrians threaten it. And that's quite a leap forward. And it's on standby, it will be on standby for 12 months. News on Libya? Uh, Libya, there is death by torture in Libyan prisons is now greater than it was under Gaddafi. Commonwealth news on Gambia. Uh, Commonwealth news on Gambia. Gambia's pulling out of the Commonwealth and the chances are it's doing so because of its human rights record and next month there is the Commonwealth conference and it would have been lambasted from there and it's never like the Commonwealth anyway. Israel. Israel is saying do not trust the Iranians uh, and certainly don't let them continue to enrich uranium as they're going to be allowed to do and if necessary keep up the, the idea of sanctions and also the threat of bombing them. Iran and cyber warfare. Oh, well, uh, Iran and cyber warfare is, is a puzzle. Mochtaba Ahmadi, who is the head of the Iranian, or was the head of the Iranian uh, uh, cyber warfare unit, was murdered yesterday. 
Mm. And uh, big news on 617 Squadron, the RAF Squadron. 617 Squadron, dam busters. Indeed. The 1940s, uh, the Ruhr Dam, etc. Uh, today is the last deployment. They're going to Afghanistan. The last deployment of 617 Squadron, the dam plus busters, as an RAF unit. And they'll come back and 617 will be reformed, eventually with the F-35, with the Royal Navy. And you'll have this uh, squadron, which is, you know, is, is rather good to have the Royal Navy and the RAF flying. The Royal Navy are quite happy to teach them how to fly the F-35. Indeed. Um, and just one last thing. Um, some news that the Army has drawn up plans to lobby MPs and get these talking heads to combat negative reports about the Army. What's all this about, then? Is it propaganda or what? Well, yes, I, yeah, I think it is propaganda, but, I mean, the point, wouldn't you expect them to, be, to, to do that? The Army or the services... Do they do it already? Yeah, the services have already had this idea that you um, that it's bad when 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 they're bad-mouthed by the press or whatever. And they actually believe at the moment that the public don't understand them. Mm. And when they come back from Afghanistan, the public will understand them even less because they'll say, well, why are we paying for these guys? How, much, so, would, how much would they get paid, do you reckon, uh, to do that lobbying? Not enough, probably, because <laughs> uh, there are a lot of organisations which they're going to take out to lunch. They'll give them lunch at the Army and Navy Club and they'll be saying to them, now, listen, why don't you put the story, uh, the correct story uh, uh, about... I don't think anybody's going to buy this at all. But the strange thing is the, the, the How much to mentality. buy you, Christopher? What? How much to buy you? They take more lunch than it would, <laughs> you know, at the Army and Navy Club. The food is actually awful. That's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS Sit Rep. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This.